Hi, I'm Holly Hughes, or Marchowicz. Today in From the World Up, I'm hopefully going to be helping you to make your desert worlds more believable and help you flesh out your desert cultures. All right, let's start off talking about the different types of desert. Um, you don't have to just write the subtropical Sahara style. Um, consider also these, the ice deserts of Antarctica, um, the cold but sandy desert of the Gobi, um, the arid rain shadow is the technical term of the Mojave. Um, the Mojave, Mojave Desert is one of the driest places on Earth. In fact, I think it is the driest place on Earth. Um, gets no precipitation at all. I'll talk about uh, precipitation a bit more later. Um, also, the salt flats. And I'm going to try really hard not to pronounce this wrong. Please tell me how I'm meant to pronounce it. The Makgadik Gadi in Botswana. God, I sound so ridiculously posh when I talk about that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, so yeah, you've got to consider sand, rock, ice, mountains, dunes, flats. Um, but what you have to remember above all things is that um, problems overlap. Um, the uh, desertification of the Sahara is the most famous. You know, you get hot, sandy winds going into Spain from the Sahara. It's spread exponentially, wiping out entire cultures. Um, that means that uh, the amount of water available um, dies out um, in the Gobi as well as uh, Sahara, very famous for it. Um, the size of it, it increases exponentially. Um, the only um, place where you don't have that kind of desertification spreading is, of course, the salt flats, because it's a salt deposit. It's not going to increase, whereas sand is uh, increases the more places it um, grinds down to nothing. One of the things that people notice when you get wrong and unfortunately don't tend to notice when you get right is uh, consistency and uh, logic in uh, flora and fauna around your worlds. So I'm going to get into talking about the kinds of plants and the kinds of animals that you're going to get in desert areas. Um, to start off with, plants, obviously not a lot. Um, the most likely ones are going to be succulents, um, cacti, and occasionally flowers like oleander. Um, they tend to have deep roots, um, and then will adapt for their surroundings. So they'll have uh, retracted stomata, you know, the little bits that stick out um, for pollen. Um, they're going to be uh, largely leafless for part or most of the year because they don't want, they, they get a lot of light anyway, and they don't want uh, to lose water um, through uh, God's what those little things called. My plant knowledge is failing me. The little holes basically in all their cells. Um, and they adapt with uh, different ways. Cactuses store huge amounts of water, so do succulents. Um, the main cactus, which apparently is just called a big old cactus or something, um, has white spines and white hairs because it re reflects both uh, the sun and the heat, uh, the light and the heat even. Um, so things like that, if you're going to, if you want to be outlandish and say something's blue, you have to think, okay, why would it have evolved to be blue in the desert? It would have evolved to be as pale as possible um, to reflect as much heat and light as possible. Um, always remember that cacti and succulents can be used for um, water and for people who are lost in the desert um, because they, you can suck up as much liquid as possible. And they don't tend to be poisonous, um, but often the flowers are too uh, because they have a hard enough time evolving. So they need to be poisonous so that those animals that are in the desert aren't going to eat them. Talking about insects now. Ugh. Um, bearing in mind I'm arachnophobic, so I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail here. 
Uh, but they tend to have uh, like hardy carapaces. They tend to be sort of uh, shiny to reflect the light and the uh, heat again. They tend to be biting and stinging insects um, because they don't have a lot else to eat. So they will crowd around oases, around caravans um, and sting and bite their way through people and camels. Um, they tend to have long legs or wings because of the sand. They either need to be able to go over it or to be able to pick their way through it. Um, you'll find them around any water source. Insects and arachnids need to drink too. Um, so any kind of well or oasis is going to have flies and you're going to need to watch out for scorpions and things like that. Scorpions burrow. Um, they go under the sand. So when you're settling up, um, that's one of the reasons uh, if you're traveling in the desert, you always put a tarpaulin down so that you don't get a scorpion up the butt. Um, for animals, you're going to get uh, burrow burrowing rodents. Um, they tend to have large ears so they can hear a great distance um, So because they want to be able to hear their um, attackers coming a long way off and burrow down into the earth. Um, you're going to get things like wild camels, um, whatever else you want to include. The animal has to be able to carry large amounts of water or survive for a long time without it. Um, if, it, if you want it to be able to cross um, the desert, um, something like a cow or a horse is going to struggle. Um, obviously, Arabian horses have been bred by humans to adapt to the desert with um, flatter feet and being very light on those feet and things like that. And with big, floofy uh, manes, eyelashes and tails uh, to keep the flies away. Um, you always have to think in terms of um, evolution, even if you're creating Again, like I say, doing a creationist story, um, the gods would not create um, an arctic fox and put it in a desert because that would just be cruel. They create a fennec, which is quick enough to eat scorpions. It has big ears so it can hear uh, attackers coming a long way off. Um, and it is uh, has light fur, which reflects the sun rather than um, thick fur, which keeps heat in. Um, often animals in deserts are nocturnal because it's cooler at night. Um, even in uh, cold areas, apparently, even in the Gobi Desert, you get a lot of nocturnal animals. Don't quite understand that, but you know. Um, Birds-wise, uh, you get a lot of flycatchers because of the insects. Again, they would be focused mainly around oases and towns um, because they would need somewhere to nest. Um, and obviously vultures. Vultures are actually very clean animals uh, because they have to survive in, in those kind of heats and, and things like that. Um, if you want to have vultures uh, do research their behaviour, uh, I'm just going to gloss over this now, but um, if you just rely on that bit in The Lion King, um, you're going to be sadly uh, confused. Also, by the way, um, I'm in the UK, so when I say a buzzard, I mean a bird of prey that is a hawk and is brown and is not a vulture, um, I will differentiate between the two in the same way that I would always differentiate between a turtle and a tortoise, uh, just if that ever comes up. It might seem pithy to be talking about weather in the context of deserts. Part of the reason that they become deserts is that they don't have seasons um, because they're on the tropical line or because they're too high up, things like that. Um, but you do get the extreme temperature change between day and night. That is a pattern all over the place. Um, the Gobi Desert apparently at night is one of the coldest places on earth. Um, I'm getting very quiet. I apologise. I'll try and moderate my tone. Um, you do get rain in the Sahara. One of the only places you don't tend to get rain is the Mojave Desert, um, as I said earlier. Uh, it's called a rain shadow desert for that very reason. Um, 
but you do get rain you do get uh snow in the gobi desert where it's very very cold um as i said you don't get huge differences between seasons so you're not going to get a big winter and summer people living in a desert won't really um mark the year in the same way as as that they tend to mark it possibly by movement of the stars movement of moons um things like that rather than um in the uk for example where it's very obvious in winter the days are long and then uh, sorry the the nights are long and the days are short and some of the other way around um sandstorms are a fantastic uh, narrative device um anybody who travels in the desert is going to be carrying a tarp with them um because when you get hit a sandstorm you cover up and you wait it out um no one with any experience would try and go through a sandstorm um, it's not like, oh, the crazy sea captain who's going to drive through the eye of the storm. No, in a desert, if you try, and, no matter how well you know it, no matter how long you've lived there, if you try and um, walk through a sandstorm, you end up turned around because the dunes are always shifting um, under the wind. It's very rare to get uh, dunes that stay there all the time. They are always, always shifting. Um, as I mentioned earlier, also consider desertification. If you're at the edge of a desert, you're going to get hot, dusty winds. Um, coming through and uh, messing with your crops, messing with your houses, filling your, your eyelashes with dust, things like that. Um, you know, the, the desert does not stop on a line. Uh, Light-wise, uh, sunrises and sunsets are going to be uh, oranges and pinks and reds because uh, of the dust from the desert um, kicking up and it causes, uh, I want to say refraction, uh, the light passing through it, uh, that's what causes sunset colours, is, is pollution and dust and sand. Uh, in the case of deserts, um, if you're going somewhere like a salt flat, it's going to be very yellow, very pure. Uh, probably same with the Gobi Desert, but I'm not entirely sure on that. Should have researched that before I did the, did the segment, shouldn't I? Um, so, yeah, that's light. Uh, the nights tend to be very, very dark because there are there is little um, habitation, therefore very little light pollution. Um, so you get the the midnight blue black skies and the swathes of white stars um so almost creamy because there's so many of them um and they are very very visible in the desert anybody who lives in a city even in a medieval uh setting there's going to be wood fires um you're going to have hills around you you're going to have woodland around you so seeing that massive expanse of uh sky Whereas if you live there, you might take it for granted. Um, if you don't, you will always be uh, astounded by that depth of, of darkness and the brilliance of the stars and the moon. Um, light is very, um, it's going to sound ridiculous, it's very bright because it's constantly reflecting off the sand um, and there is nothing to absorb it. Um, there's there's no buildings, there's no trees, uh, nothing like that. So uh, you are very aware at all times of the brightness and um, of the merciless quality of the sun. Um, so, yeah, I think that's all I need to say about the weather. Um, do ask me questions as ever. I'm more than happy to do extra research. I know that I've gone over that very quickly. So let's talk about how to get water in a desert. Pretty much everybody's first concern. Um, I'm going to go through the different ways that water is available um, and for you to consider sticking into your book. Uh, the first is oases. Um, obviously, an oasis is oasis. Yeah, anyway, um, these are areas where um, there is natural water, a spring, a river, a lagoon, 
um, and therefore there is plant life and then frequently uh, a settlement built around it. Um, an oasis uh, was not made holy, not sanctified, but was pretty much considered sacred ground. Um, it's a protected area where anyone can come to trade, to meet with uh, families, uh, to interact with different tribes. Um, there would be crops growing there. There would be funduks, uh, which is the uh, Arabic form of like a pub, but obviously uh, tends to be in those areas non-alcoholic um, because alcohol dries you out in the desert. Um, so they uh, are good places for people to meet up, to gather. Um, obviously very good places for religions to spread um, because everybody has to come to them um, and people come from all over different areas will end up in the same oasis. Um, committing crimes in an oasis uh, is a big no-no. Obviously they happened, but um, because it's, a, it's kind of considered a protected area because you have to be there because it's the only place there's water, um, it is a massive, massive social solecism and would be met with extreme prejudice and extreme uh, execution, basically, uh, if you were lucky. Um, you would also have wells scattered throughout the desert, uh, dug deep into the rock. Um, anybody who used them would be expected to maintain them, you know, clean them, make sure that there's no salt or sand getting into the water. Um, you would, if you knew where they were, um, you'd probably learn from someone who had learned from someone who had learned from someone who built a well. Um, it was very much a case of you had to be in the know to use the trade routes um, and tribes would want to keep it that way because it gave them an advantage. They don't want just anybody um, going back and forth because it means they lose that um, precedence um, and that uh, exclusivity in, the, in their trading. Uh, so, um, for example, during the Crusades, you'd get Crusaders dying um, in their masses of lack of water because they just thought God would um, keep them hydrated. Genuinely, I'm not being I'm not being pissy. They they genuinely thought that, um, and they'd be ten feet from a well, but because they didn't know what to look for and where they uh, where the trade routes were, because they weren't the indigenous people, um, they would die in their thousands. Um, like with the oases, well poisoning is like a cardinal crime. It would absolutely have you staked out in the desert or um, executed very, very horribly because, as again, people need that water and uh, the people that you kill, it's not just it's impossible to just target one person. You're going to be killing anybody who uses that well. Um, so it is uh, the ultimate crime. It's it's used as an example in um, by Jingo. Uh, by Terry Pratchett. Do I mean by Jingo or O oh, Jingo? It's one of the two. It's one of my favourite books, but I always refer to it as Jingo. Um, if, and they talk about the the fact that this guy broke hospitality because he was had to execute a guy who poisoned a well. Um, and it's that book is actually another one which is is everybody should read anyway because it's just one of the best books ever written. But also because it describes uh, desert culture and the uh, debilitating effects of heat on those who aren't used to it. Um, Kasurs, and I may be pronouncing that wrong, Q-S-O-U-R-S. Um, this is a kind of blanket term. Um, they were places where um, there were deep wells uh, in the water, but it was also used for um, irrigation. There would be pumping systems built in um, so that anybody could go and, and collect water and take it to their home, to their um, area, to their, to their animals, to their crops. Um, obviously, these kasurs would be um, a great place to meet up with your friends and to gossip over. Um, they were um, 
along water lines under the under the under the earth uh which brings me to uh the most impressive example of if you put this in a book um people might not believe you uh when marrakech was um established they dug through bedrock um underneath the city underneath the desert up to uh the mountains the atlas mountains so that they would have cool running water um in these tunnels all the way through the town so they could have ventilation systems and they'd have hatches so they could reach down and get uh, fresh cool water uh, and then these kasurs would be uh, built on top of them so that people could access them um, who weren't in the city centre so that if they were in the surrounding areas um, building um, building out there and having farms and stuff like that um, but just the the sheer undertaking of admittedly obviously it was is with slaves but if you have magic you could easily do this with a ma with a magic system um, having uh, that cool water to keep the houses cool um, and to have constant access to water is just absolutely ingenious um, but yeah you would always carry water with you uh, camels obviously you would make sure that they had drunk lots of water before they left so that they could store their own water it's where they are more efficient than horses in uh, one of the reasons anyway they're more efficient than horses for deserts um, but you would always carry water with you um, and not just like one amount you would always have twice as much water as you needed in case uh, there was a sandstorm or um, the horses the horses or camels fell lame, things like that. And you always carried double the amount of water that you needed. So um, for all that the trade caravans would be carrying goods to be traded, a huge amount of their space would be taken up with water, food and salt. So let's talk about culture. This is going to be the most uh, important part to anybody who's doing some world building. Um, you know, you can possibly skimp on doing a bit of description, but your people need to be believable. Um, so I'm going to talk through stuff. Obviously, I'm not own voice about this. I'm Welsh. Uh, Wales is pretty much the opposite of a desert, um, although the weather is frequently the same. Um, OK, so the most important thing in desert cultures is hospitality. Um, that is consistent across um, many, many cultures and many, many continents. Uh, you never steal transport from someone. You never ignore a, a body in the desert in case that person is still alive. And um, you always walk over and check and offer uh, medicine and hospitality to anyone you find. Even if an enemy comes to your door and says, I need, um, I need shelter, uh, you were obliged to take them in and there would be no fighting. Um, there would be no poisoning at the table. Uh, it was very, very important and very linked into people standing and the way that they were perceived. Um, the Good Samaritan story, for example, um, that would be any person. It's it's not a, a big deal um, in desert culture. If you see somebody collapsed, you help them um, because that could be you. Um, and you never know when that might turn around. And so you never ever ignore a body uh, and you never deny hospitality to someone um medically speaking um you're gonna end up probably with um circumcision uh, male circumcision because of um sand and small particles of rock um getting in awkward places so circumcision in a desert culture makes sense um they're probably going to know a lot about nutrition because they need to get as much as possible out of uh what little is available um so they are going to uh be quite canny uh, in in what they what it is they eat how much they eat things like that um clothing wise um it has to be light but durable uh so cottons linens things like that 
Um, it obviously it depends on the access uh, that they have to threads. So it's going to be a lot through trade. Um, if you're going to have leather, it's probably going to be goat leather, which is softer and uh, lighter than cow leather. Um, or one assumes camel hide. Um, but that will probably be used for tarpaulins to go on the ground and to cover you during uh, sandstorms rather than clothing. Um, obviously, cotton uh, is available throughout the whole of the Maghreb uh, and that will be traded south. Um, likely, uh, they will wear hair coverings and veils, not because uh, they are modest or ashamed of themselves, but because it's how you keep yourself protected. It's a way of protecting your eyes and uh, keeping your hair from getting weighed down with sand. Um, obviously, uh, the uh, spread of Islam has uh, spread the uh, link with being covered, being a sign of modesty. Um, but some of the old Berber tribes, like the Tuareg tribe, uh, which continue to be matrilineal, um, it's the men who cover themselves and the women, uh, obviously they cover their hair, but they don't cover their faces. Um, that is something to be considered as the way that the religion can be exploited through uh, exploitative uh, through uh, traditions that already exist. Um, the culture of a desert people, they are likely to have uh, very strong rules because if you break the rules, um, you could end up dead or worse, you could end up the entire tribe being dead because you were an idiot. Um, so uh, the people are naturally attuned to uh, following orders and following dictums. And therefore, when a dogmatic religion comes along with explanations and rules, they are more likely to follow it. Uh, they are more likely to follow a religion that makes you uh, pray five times a day than one that sort of says you can pray whenever you want to, um, because uh, it's it's built in like that, that meditative aspect because of the hours uh, where you can't travel or you have to bunker down during the hottest out hottest hours of the day, things like that. Um, it is open to contemplation, uh, and when you have nothing but sand to stare at. Uh, your mind works away. So uh, religions flourish um, in uh, desert cultures. Um, yeah. Um, you also have strong traditions because uh, the family unit is very important. So um, the same families will travel the same trade routes, the same families will work in the same oases, and therefore uh, traditions are passed down uh, mother to daughter, father to son, um, going throughout. Um, right there, I just need to turn my page over. feel fantastic um that cultural uh, thing is often a reason why people stay uh in deserts even though obviously they are extremely harsh um you might have a, a sacred or cultural link to a place to an area and um, this is very true obviously of the mojave desert and the uh, native americans that live there um there is a uh, a heritage to um traveling the same trade routes as well um to being that family to being the reliable family um, that does that journey and makes that makes that trip makes that um, difficult and harrowing journey over and over again. Um, people might also stay because of outside cultures, outside influences have pushed them into a difficult place, um, like the uh, story of um, Moses and the Jews leaving Egypt and therefore being nomadic for forty years. Um, that aspect of being pushed into a place that is not natural to you, but you having to learn um, how to live in, in very difficult uh, situation, very difficult conditions. Uh, it's extremely good for a narrative and for a background of a story and of a, a character's people. 
Um, opportunity is also a huge uh, boon, I suppose is the word. If you are the first people to make that journey and to start trading gold north or cotton south, you have a huge um, monopoly on that. Um, and so you become desert people because you are able to earn more and be important to have standing to uh, better yourself that way. Um, so goods that are inaccessible on one side um, are available on the other. Um, this became very true when coffee was being traded from the south, from mid-Africa and South Africa up across the desert um, into the Arabic lands. It became a cultural um, phenomenon um, and almost a staple of the diet and therefore it could be traded very, very expensively across the desert, at least until um, air travel became possible. Um, for example, uh, you get a lot of gems and gold out of West Africa, gold especially. Um, in uh, what was the Ghanaian Empire uh, going north and spices coming down from um, the Indies, uh, sorry, not the Indies, from India, uh, from uh, Turkey and uh, Persia and places like that are then coming down and being traded in the opposite direction. Um, there's also just that uh, natural nomadic lifestyle, not so much a culture, but the way of a way of living, of living oasis to oasis and never move, never stopping, never moving. And yes, there's trade along the way, but it there's it doesn't always have to be the driving force. Uh, I'm certainly not saying that any nomadic tribes are doing it for uh, capitalist gain. It's just the way that their um, their life is. And for um, traveling uh, peoples like the Romney, uh, like the Tuareg, the Berber tribes, staying in one place is stagnant and wrong uh, on a very deep level uh, so um, yeah that kind of nomadism when you get somebody who's nomadic meeting somebody who has lived in a city you get an opportunity for uh, that cultural backlash and complete inability to understand each other's point of view uh, like me a pagan being best friends with a catholic just every so often we just shake our heads and go i'm just gonna back off from this because i don't get you i don't get how your head works uh, the Gobi Desert, the settlements there, the cities uh, that were built up in the Gobi Desert were largely built uh, as trading posts, but also uh, to prevent incursion on uh, the more fertile and arable lands beneath. Uh, they didn't want um, the Mongols uh, overcoming uh, their uh, border patrols, so they built into this freezing desert um, in order to stop them therefore getting a, an eye on uh, just how nice and lush the land was beneath. Um, that is the reasons I have uh, been able to think up for staying in, in such a place. Please uh, add your own in your comments, let me know, um, and remember if you're writing a fantasy you can make this stuff up. If you want to do it you can just start with the god told them to live there and uh, you're set. Um, but understanding um, that nomadic aspect and the trade and the uh, the link to uh, oases and points of water is very, very important. Finally, I'd really like to talk about some authors who do it right. Uh, I've already mentioned Terry Pratchett's by Jingo. Fantastic book, uh, both culturally and just please read that book. Um, I'd also like to talk about uh, Trudy Canavan. Her Millennium series has some incredible desert descriptions. Uh, it's, it's an absolute masterclass in world building, although the story comes very slowly, which is a bit disappointing, but just her style of, of, uh, of writing the world and the descriptions and culture she creates are absolutely top notch. If you're going to write fantasy, you need to read Trudy Canavan just to uh, 
understand just uh, how uh, detailed world building can be. Um, I also recommend Guy Gabriel Kay's uh, The Lions of Al-Rasan, uh, based on Maghreb um, al-Andalus culture. Uh, it's a fantastic uh, description of um, desert areas, desert peoples, um, and obviously casts an eye on uh, our own world's prejudices and things like that. Amazing book. Incredible author. I genuinely have never managed to finish one of his books because I have chronic clinical depression and they're so intense and so real. And I just I just can't read them. Uh, but they're really good. And I desperately want other people to read them because he's amazing. I just can't do it myself. Um, I recommend Teresa Tomlinson's Moon Riders. Uh, that is a fantastic way of describing a tribe and the way that they interact. And likewise, uh, Katie Masters' Bone Dancers. Uh, quite similar tribal uh, backgrounds, those two, and uh, they both uh, write the desert fantastically, uh, the um, interaction of tribes fantastically, things like that. So I would definitely recommend those uh, to help you write your own. Um, also, uh, there's a bit of a how not to do it and how to do it uh, in Terry, uh, not in Terry Pratch, in David Edding's Alenium um, series. Um, on the one hand, his description of, of the light over the desert and things like that is, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, on the other hand, all the goodies are white and all the um, brown people are stupid and led aside by a, a fanatical religion. And I can't read it anymore. And it was uh, one of my favourite books growing up. Uh, but anyone with any kind of awareness at all is, is going to struggle. Um, and anybody who isn't white is going to really get angry, I should imagine, and deservedly so. Um, he was American, uh, no surprise. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's it's a very sort of 1980s American uh, view of desert culture, which is a real shame because the description is good. Uh, but it's a it's a good way to understand how not to do it. And especially if you are a white colonial person coming from that culture, it's a very good uh, example of how not to do it. OK, so that's me out. Um, I hope this is helpful. If you have any questions, if there's anything you want me to look into, please let me know. And as ever, if my voice tone is wrong, uh, if I'm sounding weird or patronising or anything like that, please tell me uh, because it's something I'm kind of paranoid about. OK, have a good rest of day. Bye.